Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Alfreton, 2011. The Travel Lodge in Alfreton is just off the A38. It looks like every other travel lodge in the country. Small, square. It has brown UPVC windows set in 90s sandstone-like brick with a grey slate-like roof. Three floors high and backs onto a small service station. When I say it's a small service station, it's tiny. More of a corridor than a plaza. There's the obligatory Greggs, Burger King and Subway. By the door, there's a stand bulging with leaflets and brochures promoting the tourist beauty spots of the nearby Peak District. The stately grandeur of Chatsworth House. The breathtaking scenery and lung-busting walks of the High Peak. The stylish Georgian elegance of Buxton. Travellers in search of beauty and charm, it seems, are recommended looking elsewhere than Alfreton. It isn't the kind of place you'd book for a romantic night away, an illicit affair may be, or, if your employer's budget for overnight stays hadn't increased for 20 years. Functional might be the best descriptor. The Travel Lodge is across the pothole car park from the services, with the entrance around the other side and opening out onto an uninspiring service road. When two Derbyshire police turned up to inspect the reservation records on Sunday the 13th of March 2011, there was only one name and one date that was of interest. The name was Matthew Ashton, husband of business analyst Gia Ashton, and the date was the 10th of March, the day Gia was last seen alive. Records showed that Matthew had stayed that night, with CCTV footage providing confirmation of him checking in, dressed in an open neck shirt and dark suit, fresh clothes draped across his arm. Securing and sealing the room, one officer stayed overnight as scene guard. The following day, and into the next, forensic investigators undertook a detailed examination of the room and connecting corridor. With Matthew Ashton held for questioning and the custody clock ticking, time wasn't on their side. Gia Ashton, a Chinese national, first travelled to the UK aged 17. The decision to study here hadn't been an easy one. An only child to a single parent, her mum, Pan Ning, sold her restaurant and home in China in order to fund her daughter's education in England. It was a gamble that paid off. After her A-levels, she was provisionally offered places at both Oxford 
and Cambridge. But a visit to the campus at Warwick, she immediately fell in love with the university. With three A's at A-level, she was able to enrol on the hugely competitive economics programme. Bright, engaging and funny, Gia was a popular student. It was while at university she met Matthew. A year ahead of her, Matthew was a talented musician. His nickname for her was his Pocket Princess, and the difference in their heights was one of the first things people noticed about the couple. Gia was less than four foot nine, with Matthew a good foot and a half taller at six foot four. They were different in other sorts of ways. Knowing the sacrifices her mother had made, Gia was incredibly focused, with a clear idea of what she wanted from life. While still students, the pair took part in the Three Peaks Challenge, an attempt to climb the highest peaks in Scotland, England and Wales for charity. On the descent of Snowdon, Gia sprained her ankle. She was undeterred though, pressing on to the end. She'd set herself a goal and was going to achieve it, come what may. Matthew went to university with little clear idea of where he wanted it to lead. Music was his passion. He was a talented pianist and beyond wanting to put his obvious talents to use, he had little vision for the future. Their futures lay together though. Within five months of meeting, the pair were engaged and in 2006, they both travelled to China, marrying just nine months since they'd first met. Matthew was the first to graduate, with Gia following 12 months later. It was at this point that they moved to Alfreton, and a neat, semi-detached house in Springfield Close. Gia had secured a much sought-after job as a business analyst at Thornton's, which, to overseas listeners, might not mean anything, but to anyone in the UK, Thornton's are the original posh chocolate maker. Once a byword for luxury and indulgence, the company now has been subsumed into the global choco kings Ferrero. The entire operation is based on an industrial estate in the Summercoats area of Alfreton. Built on the site of a former coal mine, the manufacturing, distribution and sales functions are all situated within the woodland, some established, some only a few years old in 2011. The early evening of March the 10th, 2011, was warm for the time of year. The sky was cloudless, and though darkness was gradually approaching, the lights from the factory and surrounding businesses would have just penetrated the bare branched ash and beech trees that the pathways passed between as they bisected the immature woodland. The guard at the gatehouse saw Gia leave, placing the headphones of her MP3 player in her ears at exactly 5.08pm. This was the last time Gia was seen alive. Whether or not her mind was on the usual things that occupy us on our journey home from work, we'll never know. It's likely, however, 
that the argument her and Matthew had had the night before would have crossed it. The morning hadn't been much better, so what the evening had in store was anyone's guess. Like any young couple, they were finding their way in the world together. The decision to start a family had been one that they'd been juggling with for a while. For any young, successful and ambitious young woman, that obviously came with challenges, but the pair seemed to be in agreement that they'd give it a try. Gia had been to see a doctor. As far as could be known, it wouldn't be a problem. Anyway, Matthew wouldn't be home for a little while. His supply teaching job obviously wasn't what he wanted to be doing. He wanted a permanent teaching job, something Gia had encouraged. They were a good team in that way. Some of her laser-sighted work ethic had rubbed off on him. He'd even mentioned wanted to become a headmaster. When you think about it, they did compliment each other. And anyway, all couples argued. Matthew would probably be back home by now. Usually was. The drive from Mansfield only took about 25 minutes. And as a supply teacher, he could be out and away pretty sharpish after the children had left. So what would it be tonight then? Would they reload for battle or relax with each other? Would the row resurface or retreat into the past? Gia would never find out. She was reported missing 27 hours later. Her body lay undiscovered for three days. A walk of about five minutes would have seen Gia leaving the gatehouse of Thorntons and arriving home at Springfield Close. The shortest walk would have been through the recently planted, extended plot and Sleepmore woods. The slightly longer route through the industrial estate would have been along the charming but slightly incongruously named Whimsy Way. It's not known for sure exactly which route Gia took on the evening of the 10th of March. She usually turned right out of the gate, then off along the shale path which, locally, was known as the Yellow Brick Road. It went through the woodlands, but from this point onwards, where she went and what she did on that Thursday evening is pure speculation. It was about 7 or 7.30 in the evening of Friday the 11th of March when Matthew Ashton decided to have no other option but to try the neighbours. Though dark, for March the weather was surprisingly mild as he knocked on the doors asking if anyone had seen his wife. The answer had been the same at each door. Nobody had seen her and he was told to get in touch if he needed anything. One neighbour described Matthew's inquiries as flustered and anxious. Returning home, he got a call from Gia's mum. She was due to fly back to China early the next morning and was concerned that Gia hadn't returned any of her messages. Brusquely, Matthew said he didn't know where Gia was. He hadn't spoken to her for about 36 hours, as they'd argued the previous Wednesday evening and to give her space, he'd spend the Thursday night at a hotel. The call ended with an agreement that he'd contact the police, 
and at 8.30, Gia was officially reported missing. As Matthew hadn't spoken to her for so long, as her mother was due to return home and hadn't been able to make contact, as there was no evidence she'd spent the previous evening at home, police were concerned and began making preliminary inquiries. That evening, Matthew posted on Facebook. He said Gia was missing and could anyone with any information please contact Derbyshire Police. Her colleagues reported that she hadn't turned up for work that day, that nobody had seen or heard from her since the Thursday evening. Gia's mum cancelled her flight back to China. She wasn't going to return home until she knew her daughter was safe. Led by Detective Tony Hayden, what was still a missing persons inquiry undertook the usual actions, including what evidence there might be that the individual had left of their own volition, whether there had been any financial activity linked to the bank accounts or credit cards, identifying any movements and activity on mobile phones and a trawl of local CCTV. None of these returned any positive results. Door-to-door inquiries along Springfield Crescent offered nothing by way of a lead. Nobody had seen or heard anything of Gia. A risk assessment concluded that she wasn't likely to be a danger to herself and within 24 hours of receiving the initial missing persons report, physical searches began along the one-mile route between work and home. Hedges and litter bins were inspected, along with the commercial waste from the industrial estate and retail park along possible routes from Springfield Crescent. Officers were also aided by Derbyshire Mountain Rescue to search the woodlands which ran along either side of the yellow brick road, the limestone shale trail that made up the longest section of Gia's usual route. It was the afternoon of Sunday the 15th of March that the search for Gia was called off. An inquiry into a suspected murder began. Beaten and blooded, her body was found not far from the Yellowbick Road, a third of the way through the forest, and just 300 yards from where she was last seen alive, the gatehouse of the Thornton site. There's no end of statistics regarding female homicide in the UK that illustrate the point that the chances of being murdered by a stranger are vanishingly small and that a husband or partner or ex-partner are more often than not the aggressor. Investigators are therefore naturally inclined to look at the males closest to the victim first. Though exhibiting all recognisable signs of concern and worry, Immediately after the discovery of Gia's body, her husband Matthew was arrested. He'd freely admitted to having recently argued with his wife, and while that alone didn't make him a suspect, the unusual act of booking into a hotel the night Gia had been murdered, admittedly before he was seemingly aware she was missing, was a major red flag. Additionally, when interviewing her colleagues from work, some information regarding their relationship came to the police's attention. Gia had admitted to at least one workmate that she regularly chatted with other men online. It wasn't known whether this was something Matthew was aware of, 
but could its possible discovery have sparked a reaction in him that led to the killing of his wife? Could one of the men she spoke to online be responsible for her murder? The press at the time lapped up the idea that Gia's husband might be responsible. The absence too of much detail about the nature of her online chats created a vacuum in which all kinds of innuendo thrived. With the body removed for post-mortem to the pathology lab in the basement of the Derby Royal Hospital, detectives moved methodically through their investigative actions. The entire forest underwent a fingertip search and forensic examinations were made of their home at the travel lodge at which Matthew had spent the night as well as his blue Vauxhall Astra. Gia's computers, both at home and at work, were interrogated and Matthew's alibi for all of Thursday and Friday was checked and double-checked. Some actions were completed to the satisfaction of the detectives quicker than others. But within days, one key conclusion was drawn. Matthew hadn't been involved in the death of his wife. He'd been at school all day on both Thursday and Friday, and taking into account journey times and other corroboration, he was released without charge. A police source confirming to the media that he was no longer the focus of their inquiries. The post-mortem suggested that G had been attacked with great ferocity. Her injuries compared to a high-speed car collision or falling from a great height. There was no suggestion of a sexual element to her attack and though her belongings were missing from the immediate vicinity of her body, over the course of searches, her MP3 player, mobile phone and glasses were discovered scattered across a wide area of the woods with a handbag found hanging 15 feet up in a tree. Appeals through the media had generated a number of leads, all of which the investigation were keen to push out to the public. Exactly 24 hours before the last sighting of Gia, on the Wednesday afternoon, a driver reported being involved in an incident on Sleepmore Lane, a road which runs parallel to Whimsy Way. Driving in the general direction of Springfield Crescent, he was forced to come to a sudden stop when a man in his 50s thin and approximately six foot, ran straight out in front of his car. Wearing a tan, sheepskin coat, he attempted to hide his face from the driver with an upturned collar of his coat. Seconds later, he was followed with speed by a younger man, shorter and in his late twenties. The pair seemed to be arguing, shouting with the younger man flailing his arms, whom he chased away and out of sight. Of greater interest to detectives, though, was the sighting of a man seen sleeping rough in the woods. Both in the days leading up to the attack, and until the area became the focus of a huge police operation, a tall, stocky man with dark, shaven hair was seen by several witnesses, either walking through some of the denser vegetation, or on one occasion, at a makeshift camp in the vicinity of where Gia's body was found. Publicly, Detective Chief Inspector Tony Hayden was keeping an open mind regarding the individual. That he was being sought only as a potential witness. Privately though, reports had been received of a man fitting a similar description, watching pedestrians they walked along the yellow brick road path, and as such, identifying who he was became a huge focus for the inquiry. Drinkers at the Coats Inn 
just a quarter of a mile from where Gia's body was discovered, also came forward with some information. A pub at the time, with a reputation that was built on cheapness of its beer, and easy availability of competitively priced, untraceable consumer electronics, the shock of the broader community was illustrated by their willingness to speak to the police. At about 6pm, a man described dishevelled and nervous ordered some food and a couple of drinks. He wasn't a regular. In fact, nobody could recall seeing him before. And a stranger in every sense of the word, with a bowmaid describing him as a bit odd. Still, CCTV images were released of a tall man, probably early 40s or 50s, thin-faced, pronounced nose and dark, thinning hair. Outwardly, it seemed that the investigation was cast in a wide net. A number of individuals were being sought, each identifiable through various quite general descriptions or specific CCTV images. Within the investigation, however, a single report provided DCI Hayden with a piece of information that was significant as it was specific. Both the post-mortem and the forensic analysis of Gia's personal belongings, her bag, MP3 player and her phone, had yielded a DNA profile. Unidentified fingerprints were also found on her glasses and phone, and though they were not matched with anyone connected to Gia or on the National Police Database, detectives were confident that these highly specific pieces of evidence would prove critical if, or when, they'd identified a suspect. Weeks passed by, and the appeals for the cast of suspicious men the police were looking to speak to had ruled out the stranger in the pub, and also the two men seen in an argument on Sleepmore Lane. That just left one individual still outstanding. The tall, stocky man seen in and around the woods on the days either side of Gia's murder. A £20,000 reward, offered anonymously but suggested locally to have come from Gia's employer, had failed to tempt anyone with secret knowledge of the murder to come forward. Unease was starting to rise in the family. Gia's mother who cancelled her return to China the evening her daughter had been reported missing, had returned to deal with an urgent issue, and there were worries that despite the flurry of early activity, the investigation had stalled. Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Cottrell spoke to the press briefing at the beginning of April, of his confidence that, given the somewhat out-of-the-way location of the attack, that the man they were looking for was local. To emphasise this belief... He invited all males between the age of 18 and 55 in the Summercoats and Alfreton area to supply a voluntary DNA and fingerprint sample. Over the following weeks, almost 1,500 men came forward, but this passive strategy of DNA collection wasn't the only work taking place. Holding to the belief that the homeless man in the forest was someone they needed to identify, Police made visits to homeless support services across the area. To reassure these more vulnerable members of society, the police gave assurances that specimens wouldn't be kept on record and would only be checked against the samples taken from Gia's belongings and body.
The chocolate business is a tricky one. Thorntons, for instance, do 40% of their business in the seven weeks leading up to Christmas. And as such, the warehousing and distribution divisions of the company employs a huge number of temporary staff during this time. One of those staff was David Simmons, nicknamed Smithy by his friends because of his similarity to the James Corden character in the sitcom Gavin and Stacey. At six foot two, he should have been well suited to the lifting and shifting around the warehouse units. However, even as a temporary staff member, it took just a couple of weeks before he was let go due to a combination of lateness and laziness. Leaving school at 17, a father by 19 and largely jobless, it's safe to say that his life wasn't planning out as either his parents or he had hoped for. Simmons grew up in relative affluence. He was brought up in a loving and supportive home by his father Michael, a director of a local printing and packaging manufacturer, and mother Leslie. Along with his young brother Paul, they lived in a small executive home just half a mile from the Thorns factory, on the elegantly named Blenheim Crescent. He found school difficult, leaving at 17 for similar reasons he'd had to leave the Thorntons factory. Without the structure of education or work, Simmons' life drifted. Assisted by recreational drug use, he drove his parents to despair and brought chaos to the home, eventually moving out. After the birth of his son, from 2009 onwards, what was an unstructured life fell even into greater disarray. Splitting from his girlfriend and with a reluctance to return home, Simmons sofa surfed from one friend to another as and when the hospitality ran dry. Without any meaningful work, the chances of securing a place for himself were non-existent and often he'd sleep rough, reaching out to local homeless organisations for whatever support that they could offer. It is through this connection he was approached by the police. Had he heard about the young girl that had been murdered, the one who worked at Thornton's, he had. He'd worked there himself for a while. Would he mind providing a DNA sample? A mouth swab? Just for elimination purposes? Whether he minded or not, David Simmons provided a sample, and in a matter of days, in a phone call from the National Forensic Science Service, Detective Chief Inspector Tony Hayden was informed that they'd identified a match with the traces of DNA found on the body and belongings of G. Ashton. 21-year-old David Matthew Simmons. On the evening that Matthew Ashton checked into the Alfreton Travel Lodge, late in the evening that G. Ashton was brutally murdered, David Simmons returned to his family home for the first time in a while. He'd been working occasionally as a delivery driver at a takeaway in nearby Hena. Irregular shifts saw him short of cash and he applied for and received £30 crisis loan from the benefits office. Without anywhere to stay, he had in recent nights gravitated to somewhere that he felt familiar, Sleepmore Woods. Growing up nearby, he could slip into the woods, smoke some weed and attempt to put the worries of life out of his mind 
however briefly. Whether the attack was a robbery gone wrong or sexually motivated isn't known. Although Gia and David weren't equated, did Gia recognise Simmons from maybe seeing him around the Thornton's facility? Did he recognise her? Again, it's not known. But what is, is that Gia was dragged from the path into the undergrowth. She was beaten around the head and body, her bag ripped from her arm, the contents tipped onto the floor. The Home Office pathologist, who undertook the post-mortem, explained the injuries were comparable to falling from a great height or the direct impact of a car. Her chest was crushed and her heart ruptured. Her body dragged further into the undergrowth and hidden beneath branches and leaves. The property taken by Simmons was found over the following weeks scattered across an area about half a square mile of woodlands. Her phone smashed, her glasses smashed, her bag flung into a tree. The purse had been emptied with cards and any cash taken. It was noted at trial that Gia rarely carried more than five or ten pounds in cash. Given that Gia had left work just after 5pm, the attack was as brief as it was brutal. By 5.30, Simmons was buying fish and chips, probably from Summercoat's fish bar, which was en route to his family home. The server joked about the cuts and scratches on his arms and face. He joked that he got them when he intervened to help a girl who was in a row with a boyfriend. In the days following Gia's murder, but before her body had been discovered, Simmons was seen in and around the forest. The proximity to his parents meant he could travel between the two places with relative ease. It's unknown what he was doing during his return to the scene of crime. Was he searching for something lost during the attack that, if found, would have revealed his identity? Did he make further attempts to hide the body? Did he think he could move the body somewhere else? When the police called at the family home six weeks later, though, to ask if he'd seen anything or provide a DNA swab, what is known is that he became spooked. Though he'd intermittently been staying with his parents, he hastily arranged with his employer to have use of a small, unfurnished flat above the restaurant and moved in within hours of providing the police with a saliva sample. It was in the flat above the restaurant on the 6th of May that officers, under the direction of Detective Chief Inspector Tony Hayden, found and arrested Simmons for the suspected murder of 25-year-old Gia Ashton. It was at Nottingham Magistrates Court then, on the 11th of May, that he stood before the bench and pleaded not guilty to the charges placed against him, with a trial set for later in the year. Had Simmons pleaded guilty at the magistrate's hearing back in May, he would have been remanded in custody, with a sentencing hearing taking place relatively quickly. As it was, pleading not guilty meant there would need to be a trial at Crown Court, with the opening of the case set for the 29th of September. In the months leading up to the trial, both the prosecution and defence 
had time to prepare their cases. During this period, the evidence that is to be presented by the prosecution is provided to the defence, allowing them the opportunity to challenge its validity and interpretation. Unlike in the US, where the prosecution is obliged to provide the defence with all material, think Adnan Syed and the Brady violation at his original trial. In UK law, that is not the case. Here, the system is one in which, while all interview recordings, reports and statements must be shared, only, as a House of Lords report on evidential disclosure at criminal trial describes, only material from the investigation that is capable of undermining the prosecution's case and or assisting the defence is shared. It may seem that this puts the defence at a disadvantage, and you may be right, with the prosecution the ultimate gatekeeper of information. In reality though, barristers generally both prosecute and defend cases in equal measure. As such, the motivation for not operating in good faith when prosecuting is undermined by the fact that in the next case they'd likely fall victim to the same shenanigans when defending. The amount of court time normally set aside to hear a murder trial is 10 sitting days. And as Matthew Ashton and his mother approached Nottingham Crown Court, they knew to expect a long and distressing couple of weeks. For the dog end of September, the weather was fair enough. The sun beat down from a clear blue sky with only the slightest breeze in the air. Wearing black trousers and a black open neck shirt, Matthew Ashton approached the large red sandstone entrance to the court. A wide diagonal window runs from the pavement to the flat top roof. Up the five or six steps he walked nervously, his head tilting downwards and away from the cameras. The first panic knock on the neighbours' doors. The discovery by the police of Gia's brutalised body. The 72 hours which Matthew himself was the focus of the police investigation. The arrest of David Simmons. They were all waypoints on a tragic journey which had led him here. Taking his seat in court one, Simmons' mother, father and brother were sat just yards away. For the next two weeks, this pine-panelled courtroom would see Gia's life and death laid bare. Before that though, the legal formalities must be undertaken. The judge, Justice Michael Stokes, asked Simmons, how does the defendant plead? The answer came from the dock was unexpected. Guilty. The weight of the evidence against him had clearly left Simmons with no other option but to accept his fate. A process through which the truth would have been discovered over the course of two agonising weeks had been unexpectedly curtailed. Justice found in just minutes. The court was adjourned, sentences listed, for seven days hence. At that sentencing, remarks delivered by Justice Stokes addressed Simmons directly, dismissing any possible suggestion that he hadn't intended Gia's death. Had your motive only been robbery, given the huge disparity in size and weight, you have had a simple task of relieving her of the few pounds she had in her possession. I'm satisfied, he concluded, that, whatever the motive, you intended to kill her. 
Simmons was subsequently sentenced to just under 28 years in prison. Stood on the steps of the court, following the sentencing, Matthew made a statement for the family of G. Aston. In it he said, I hope that justice will be done and that this despicable being will never be free to kill again. He's taken someone special and irreplaceable. And for what? Detective Superintendent Terry Branson followed. Whilst I believe this may well have been a chance meeting in the woods on March the 10th, thereafter what took place was not chance, not coincidental. Unable to attend the trial, Gia's mum, Penn, provided a written statement to the press. In it, she said that her life had been destroyed by Simmons. He killed my hopes, my dreams and my future. All of my joy in life died with my darling daughter. And what of the future? Within weeks of Gia's murder, Matthew Ashen spoke of the inspiration his wife had been to him. That she had been the driving force behind his pursuit of a career in education and that he continue it as a tribute to her. Rebuilding his life, Matthew has made a new one for himself in Russia. As a teacher and member of the senior leadership team at a prestigious international school. What life the pair could have had together will never be known. They may have gone on to have a family together. Gia's career had started with all the promise that her mother had wished for her when she made the difficult decision to send her daughter to be educated in the UK. I'm walking through Sleepmore Woods. In, in the past couple of episodes, the cases that I've covered have taken place against a backdrop of rolling hills and lush green fields and striking rock formations. Such bucolic beauty isn't quite what's here. This 50 acres of woodland sits within a vast industrial estate and it was here that Gia worked at what was then Thornton's. And it was within these woods that she was found murdered. I'm walking along the yellow brick road pathway that she took that early evening in March and if I'm honest the woodland's rather bleak this section is obviously part of the wood that was planted in the wake of the coal mine closure uh, the older woods being way back behind me there's there's a few older trees, uh, but most are uh, immature 
and they've clearly mostly self-seeded from the original crop that that was planted and there's no real care has been taken of it they all just seem to be fighting with each other for survival they're not they're not in good nick there's quite a range of species there's oak and ash and larch sycamores and spruce and I mean they're all but they're all skinny and stretching upwards and kind of fighting for the light against each other despite that and even though I'm only about what, 25 meters in to the woods the trees are really quite densely packed and as such you know someone stood 10 so meters away who didn't want to be seen could easily hide the density also means that the sounds outside are, outside of the woods are muffled out therefore any cries of help from inside would be baffled to a near silence the thickness of it all and all the windfall of branches and trees and the litter on the ground really would drastically limit any chances of escape the path being the only route through it's not it's not really a surprise that the mountain rescue dogs were used in the search for Gia it's not really a terrain the kind of the terrain that makes it necessary because it's just uniformly flat but the crowding of the trees and the fallen trunks and the thickness of the undergrowth would make it difficult to search just with your eyes I read the other day that there was that the dog that found her was a Megan a border collie who I think she was just six at the time and she was awarded a, an official police commendation along with a handler by the chief constable after the case was concluded Every, um, every now and again there's small charred remnants of, of tiny fires and flattened bracken and tree trunks and stumps that are arranged in little clusters and crumpled cans of cider. The, the local kids have clearly made this a spot for some sort of illicit teenage hanging out. It's, it's easy to imagine that the privacy it offered them is the one thing that attracts them here. And it's the same privacy it offered to Simmons in the days leading up to Gia's murder and also when he committed the act. In fact, that, that these woods were the location of a horrific murder, of a bright, brilliant young woman at the hands of a man who grew up just a mile or so away 
probably add to the edge of the place for them. It's the kind of story that's that's there to shock and spook each other with of how a 19-stone man violently and senselessly murdered a slight young woman half his size. There's no plaque or memorial to what to what occurred here. There's nothing there's nothing that marks what happened. Maybe teenagers telling stories around a fire is the only way that G is remembered as a character in some sort of modern folk tale. Not a woman with hopes and dreams and a life ahead of her. I kind of hope this podcast to change that.